let's um, let's close the door when yeah when everyone's here. So, Owen, do, I, do you need to start it? It's all set. Okay. So, congratulations. You've, we've uh, come through the first day. So, so, maybe bring this down a little bit. Is that, is that a little bit better? Okay. Um, for how many people has it been a challenging day? Okay, and as, as I've been saying, that, that changes, and it's, it's, uh, it'd be great if we would have a way to make it less challenging the first day, but we haven't figured it out yet. And it just takes some time to come from our everyday lives, to come into this uh, setting where we have this really single-minded focus on developing awareness and presence. And so... Uh, Things will, things will shift, and there'll be some chances uh, tomorrow to talk quite individually about how we're doing. And a little bit of chance tonight. I'm, my intention is to talk for maybe 40 or 45 minutes and have some time to talk afterwards together. And then we'll go back into uh, walking and then the final sitting. So this evening, I want to focus particularly on the theme of clear seeing, which is uh, a main focus of our retreat, clear seeing, cultivating clear seeing, opening the heart. And in a way, 
I think as we're seeing and as we'll see more clearly, the qualities of clear seeing and the qualities of having an open heart are quite connected. And in developing the one, we develop the other and, and vice versa. And, and this evening, though, I want to particularly focus on the qualities of clear seeing. Uh, and, in, uh, and that means especially two qualities or two factors uh, the factors of mindfulness and the factors of wisdom. These are really the aspects of clear seeing that we're particularly uh, wanting to develop. And as we uh, develop those, we also will see how we develop the qualities of loving kindness and compassion. It's often said, in fact, that there are uh, two wings of the Dharma, or two wings of our practice, imagining it as a wonderful soaring uh, bird, that it's the two wings are wisdom and compassion. And in a way, uh, this evening, I'll focus especially on the quality of mindfulness and make that connections with with wisdom clear as well. So then focusing on the clear seeing uh, dimensions. So first, uh, some on mindfulness and just to speak more fully about the quality of mindfulness, which is really quite a uh, both very simple and very uh, special quality of our, of our minds. And uh, talk more generally, and then talk about the sequence of training in mindfulness that we're experiencing here, the movement into the so-called four foundations of mindfulness. And I'll talk especially uh, near the end part of the talk on mindfulness of the body which is what the focus has really been so far when we've been looking at uh, mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of uh, sensations of the body. And try to uh, broaden the uh, sense of what that means and why it's important for both our practice here and for our everyday lives. Mindfulness is, uh, in the Pali language, is sati. And so mindfulness is a Victorian age uh, translation, which is a little bit off. We probably should better translate it as mind-heartfulness because it really does involve the heart. In fact, in the uh, the Pali language, which was the language that the uh, texts of the Buddha or the discourses of the Buddha were written down in, and in, in most Asian language, there isn't the kind of distinction between mind and heart that we have in Western languages. And so, uh, in fact, the, uh, there, in, in the Chinese language, there's a pictogram for mindfulness, and it's made up of uh, two, uh, two images. One is an image for present moments, and the other is a composite image of the heart and a house for a home. So if we, if we bring those together, we might say that mindfulness is finding a home for our heart in the present moment, all just in one little image of, of, of mindfulness. So you can see how in those languages, uh, the quality of, that we call the mind and the quality of the heart are quite, are quite connected. Mindfulness is, is a kind of direct attention to whatever's happening in the present moment. This is how uh, Sylvia Borstein talks about it. 
Mindfulness is the aware, balanced acceptance of present experience. It isn't more complicated than that. It is opening to or receiving the present moment, pleasant or unpleasant, just as it is, without either clinging to it or rejecting it. So it's a quality of attention in which we're focused on the object. It could be the breath, as it has been for us, or body sensations. And this is a this is this actually was a distinctive um, innovation of the Buddha to actually bring attention in this focused way to moment-to-moment experience. That if you look to the the qualities of the traditions at the time of the Buddha in India, the Vedas and Upanishads, they're more oriented towards uh, really seeking the divine, invoking the divine, and so forth. And that uh, certainly has, has a value, but it's the quality of developing a kind of meditation that wasn't so much trying to reach the transcendental, but looking, we might say, for the sacred in the moment-to-moment experience, and particularly being able to focus on the uh, present experience in a very direct way. That is uh, quite distinctive, a distinctive contribution of the Buddha. And we find now in, in contemporary Western culture and indeed around the world, the quality of mindfulness, I think, is moving from its uh, origin in Buddhist tradition and entering quite a bit more broadly into the culture. That in the last 20 or 30 years, there have been major ways in which mindfulness has become a powerful tool in the areas of medicine, in the areas of education, the areas of psychotherapy, uh, being discussed as a major way of knowing by philosophers and scientists. And it, I think it's not hard to imagine in 50 years it may, there may be an education in mindfulness that actually doesn't necessarily ground itself in a particular religious or spiritual tradition. I think that's happening in the culture right now. And I was thinking of my friend uh, Diana Winston, whom some of you know, who is uh, a member of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council. And Diana was invited to go to Los Angeles, and she went there about a year ago. And she's now the education director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center at UCLA, which received a $23 million grant to study mindfulness. And it's housed in the medical school. And it can give a sense of how much this quality of mindfulness is really entering the culture. And we get to study it really in its original formulation, in its, uh, with some of, the, some of the precision and clarity that was, that was given to mindfulness by the Buddha. The Buddha talked about mindfulness and the practice of mindfulness as what he called a direct path to transform suffering. That there's something about just being very simply with what is that is transformative. I'll read some from a text, which I'm sure some of you have read and some of you will read, may want to read in the future. It's, it's the basic text in which the practice of mindfulness is described called the Foundations of Mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. Sati, mindfulness, The patana part means more or less foundations, and sutta means discourse, so discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. And the Buddha in the uh, 
second paragraph of this discourse says, practitioners, this, meaning mindfulness, is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the transformation of sorrow and suffering, for the attainment of the true way, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. And mindfulness of the body is the first foundation. I'll talk about the other three in a little while. So I wanted to say a little bit more about what mindfulness is by naming some of the qualities of of mindfulness. First of all, it's a kind of bare attention of what's happening in experience. That is, we learn to be just with the breath or just with sensations and we notice how much we complicate experience, how we have uh, a knee pain and we may be telling ourselves stories about the fact that, what? I'll never make it through the retreat. This knee pain surely is the reappearance of some ancient pains which will stay with me for days and days. Or... um, or, damn, I was looking, sorry, don't usually <laughs> use that kind of language here, but, I, you know, we, well, you may have said that to yourself, though. Uh, you, may, you, said, you may have said, darn, or, or something else. <laughs> uh, I came here for bliss, understanding, wisdom, and a good time, and look at what I'm experiencing. It's knee pain. And you might tell yourself a story. Maybe I'm not a good meditator. Maybe I should have stayed with yoga. Maybe I should have. Maybe I should have stayed with kirtan and chanting. You know, maybe it would have been better to take a vacation this week. And the mind can. Has anyone experienced your mind taking a slight trip? <laughs> that that's something that we study when we study mindfulness, because the mindfulness invites what we might call a bare attention, and everything else is extra. And that's why when we, when we actually practice mindfulness, a lot of our learning actually is not so much from the mindfulness, but it's in the ways that mindfulness is difficult for us. That's where we learn. We learn how my mind works, what I do with a sensation in the body, in my knee, what I do with things not going as I want them to go, and so forth. And you can see how the Buddha talks about uh, the mindfulness practice being kind of purification, because everything else comes up in our consciousness and we get to look at it. So mindfulness is a kind of bare attention. We might say it's a kind of direct knowing of the object of meditation. It's a kind of direct and in some sense uh, unmediated uh, knowing of what's before us. And as we practice mindfulness more, not just with mindfulness of the body, but with mindfulness of uh, thoughts and emotions, and even going into more complex experiences in daily life, we get to study how much we can really uh, often simplify our lives by just really being mindful of what's happening. Let's suppose that I have a difficult interaction with a friend and I'm quite angry and the mind can get very complicated and often we don't actually just tune in and mindfully study our anger or mindfully look at what's happening. And often that can be very, very helpful because 
what tends to happen is that when we're not actually being directly with phenomena, we basically go off in all sorts of directions. A lot of them are we tell ourselves stories, we make assumptions, and in some sense we have to do that in our lives. But what mindfulness practice helps us do is it helps us really know with some clarity the distinction between the the more direct or more direct experience and our interpretations, assumptions, and jumps. And that helps us to not be in a way so, uh, so trapped or so unconscious of the, of the interpretations and jumps. And again, not to say that we don't make interpretations, we necessarily have to, but we probably make a lot more than we need to. And what mindfulness practice helps us to do is to really study that, because in trying to be directly aware, we necessarily study all the jumps, all the interpretations. We see, oh, this is where my mind's going. This is what I'm doing. And so that direct attention suggests another quality of mindfulness, which is that mindfulness means a steady, a steady uh, awareness of the object. There's a quality of um, what in actually in one of the older texts is called, at least it's translated as the non-wobbling quality of mindfulness. Mindfulness can stay and stay on an object and have a kind of uh, closeness to the object such that it doesn't wobble, it doesn't forget the object, it can stay on the object without wavering. Let me read, I think I have that, that uh, passage here. This is from, I believe, about the uh, second or third century. The word mindfulness derives from a root meaning It signifies presence of mind, attentiveness to the present, rather than the faculty of memory. It has the characteristic, here it is, it has the characteristic of not wobbling, Buddhist technical term, i.e. not floating away. (laughs) Not floating away from the object. Its function is absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. And so as we strengthen in mindfulness, we'll have that Uh, quality of steadiness on the object, whether it's the breath or body sensations, or as we open up to the other foundations of mindfulness, to thoughts, emotions, and even uh, patterns of thought. Mindfulness is also present-centered. We stay with the present moment. Even if we're having a thought that may be of the past, we can be mindful of that thought in the present moment. And it really is based on the understanding that uh, the present moment is the moment in which we can actually make choices and act with wisdom or not, act with freedom, make choices that lead to freedom or suffering, that the present moment is, we might say, the place of a freedom. And so we're directed to come back to the present moment over and over again. I remember hearing this story from uh, Jack Kornfield where he, he uh, someone, I think someone brought him a big sign that was someone, someone took, probably, perhaps without proper ethics, from Las Vegas. And the sign said, you must be present to win. <coughs> That's true here also. 
that, that in the present moment is where we really live our lives. And part of what we discover in mindfulness is how much of the time we're not in the present moment. And again, it's not to say that we don't want to plan or we don't want to reflect on the future or the past, but we can uh, do so more and more from the present moment. There's a way that we can have our planning come more from the present moment, from really knowing this is what I'm doing, rather than, as typically the case, in a way being ruled by the present, by the past and the future. Having the future just kind of push us or impel us to have certain thoughts and and have or have our worry about the future just happening more unconsciously without mindfulness. And so the training here is also a training to be more more present-centered. Another quality that's really crucial of mindfulness is that it's non-reactive, that it can be with the object, the breath, uh, body sensations, thoughts, emotions, other aspects of experience, neither grabbing hold of the object, trying to cling to it, nor trying to push it away. And again, a lot of our learning comes from being in mindfulness and noticing how much we try to grab hold of the object. If it's pleasant, we tend to grab hold and say, I want more, or isn't this great, and, and so forth. And if it's unpleasant, we tend to push it away. You know, they're very obvious with sensations in the body. And part of what we study when we practice mindfulness are the ways that we actually have a hard time often uh, just being non-reactively with the body, with the other objects. And it's, it's actually can be a very powerful learning. And I remember in some of my first um, years of practicing meditation, it was an incredible revelation that I could actually be with unpleasant sensations and not just try to get rid of them. And, and I experienced, as some of you may have experienced, that uh, sometimes I would be with an unpleasant sensation and it would be like my mind was yelling and screaming. Has anyone experienced that? That, that that's something that we, that we can notice, that, some, that somehow there's our conditioning makes it very hard for us to be with what's unpleasant. Makes it very hard to be, let's say, with unpleasant emotions when we have a difficult time with another person. And yet, when we're not conscious and not mindful, we tend to be reactive. We tend to do things half consciously or unconsciously. You know, and again, it's probably easy to see in the context of interpersonal relationships where I can have a strong emotion, hardly be aware of it, and be reacting through words or actions even before I knew what I was doing. You know, very common in, in people talking to each other. And with mindfulness, what we do is we, we really bring about a greater ability to be with whatever's happening, especially the, uh, probably for us most challenging, is the unpleasant. But actually it's hard to be with the pleasant also. Because typically, again, you can st- we can study this perhaps at the meals. You have some pleasant experience and what, what are we often doing? We're often, our mind, our conditioning says, pleasant, yes, more, yes, more. And you can see this, of course, in kids, where, where they would, uh, you know, just be, and often in ourselves, where even before we're tasting something, they're reaching or we're reaching for the next bite. Has anyone ever experienced this? <laughs> and, so, and so this is, this is really what we study. And you can see it's a, it's a, 
it's a, a study that can go deeply and can also uh, be very revealing and that it's not easy. Because in a way, when, we, when we're asked to be mindful, we come up against uh, a tremendous amount of conditioning that's been around whatever, for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And our practice has been around, at least at this retreat, for one day. So it's natural that it's going to be a little challenging, but it's also surprising that even with uh, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years conditioning, with the practice of mindfulness, we can actually uh, cut through a lot of the conditioning fairly quickly. Pretty interesting that we can actually do that and learn to uh, really be in a different way. Another quality that we want to cultivate in mindfulness is a quality of being non-judgmental. That we just, again, that it's all really in that, that sense of bare attention. We try to be present and we can be, we're encouraged really to be non-judgmental both about whatever's happening and about how we're doing with what's happening. And by non-judgmental, I mean that we're not coming down hard on ourselves or on someone else. Uh, There's a sense of judgment that also carries a quality of discernment or seeing. And I'm not talking about that quality. I'm talking about the reactive quality that, that says this shouldn't be happening or that says you haven't been mindful for the last 10 minutes. Maybe, maybe you should do yoga or, or go back to those earlier, uh, earlier points that we might have been making. Another quality about mindfulness is that it's actually really interested, that it's actually interested in experience. There's a quality of curiosity and inquiry that can, that can be there with mindfulness. We can really say, what is this? What is this human consciousness? What is this conditioning? How do I relate to uh, the unpleasant and the pleasant? Because in a way, mindfulness is this tool that lets us study the basics of human experience. We're on the first day of that study, and we're kind of getting, getting the tool uh, and learning how to use it. But it's, it's really a quality, uh, a quality that can be there, can be one of a lot of interest. And the Buddha talks about the quality of inquiry and interest as one of the factors of awakening, that it both leads to deeper awakening when we're really interested, and it actually is a sign of awakening to have that quality of interest. The Buddha in the text on mindfulness talks about how the mindfulness practitioner is ardent, is both energetic but deeply interested. And this is something that that develops as the mindfulness strengthens. Another, and this is the last aspect of mindfulness I'll talk about, is that mindfulness has the quality of going more deeply. It has the capacity to go from the more gross to the more subtle. Let me read, I think I have a passage from uh, Joseph Goldstein talks about mindfulness in this way. What captures the sense and meaning of mindfulness is the understanding of mindfulness as fullness of mind or fullness of uh, awareness. In this fullness of attention, there are no barriers, no exclusions. It includes and encompasses every aspect of experience. The characteristic of mindfulness is one of non-superficiality, 
Mindfulness is penetrative and profound. If we are mindful of an object, our awareness will sink deeply into it. And so there's this way that as we are mindful, we start with what is more gross and we move towards more towards what is more subtle. And we do this in a few ways. Partly the, the four foundations of mindfulness themselves give us a sense of moving from the more gross to the more subtle. That is, the, the four foundations are mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the feeling tone or the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which again we don't immediately notice. Mindfulness, the third foundation is mindfulness of states of mind and heart, the, you know, the factors of greed or anger or joy or concentration and so forth. And the fourth foundation is called mindfulness of the dhammas. It's really a mindfulness of the larger patterns of experience. So we start to, as we develop in mindfulness, we may start with what are really the grossest aspects of the body, the most obvious aspects of the body. We notice sensations, we may notice uh, the breathing, and as we stay with the body, we move into more subtle dimensions of body, and we also gradually open up to more subtle dimensions of experience. There's a way in which, as we sit, to use more Western language, as we sit with the intention just to be aware, just to be mindful, we actually open up at times to what has been unconscious in our lives. And so those of you who've done retreats know that at times uh, we open up to parts of our experience that were beneath the threshold of awareness. In a way, it's, it's, a kind of, uh, it's a kind of inviting of what wants to come out, to come out. And there's a way in which when we practice mindfulness, over time especially, we develop a kind of trust in the way that experience unfolds. We develop a kind of trust that if I just sit here and I'm aware, and if I cultivate awareness in my life, certain parts of my experience will open up that are important to look at. You know? And so it's not uncommon when we first start meditating to have certain uh, areas of our life, certain motives might could be uh, a conflict may surface that wasn't that we weren't very conscious of. It also could be an aspiration or a motivation. For me, when I've done retreats, it's put me in touch with some of my deeper motivations, which gets would often get covered over in daily life. We're so busy, we're frenetic. When we sit and are quiet, we open up to um, the deeper uh, our deeper motives, what we really want in our lives, as well as to. Uh, unconscious conflicts, materials, different emotions that we haven't given so much space to. And there's a way in which that all opens up over time in, in the practice. We can actually see this when we look particularly at mindfulness of the body. And I want to talk a little bit about that uh, and, then, and then close with some discussion of, of of the link between mindfulness and wisdom. There's uh, a way in which uh, this practice of mindfulness of the body, which is the first foundation of mindfulness, is a very powerful tool for people who live in Western culture. That in many ways, uh, our culture 
has involved a certain, uh, almost for many of us, a kind of disassociation from the body, or at least a lack of awareness of the body. There's a line in a short story by James Joyce, I think it's one of the stories in the, the Dubliners, where he, he starts, I think he starts near the beginning of the story by saying, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> and it goes on and tells the story of Mr. Duffy who lived a short distance from his body. And does anyone relate to that? <laughs> that, that for many of us, and I, uh, I include myself, that uh, we often are not very aware of our bodies. And for many of us, it's been the practice of yoga or, or other body disciplines which have really brought us back to our body. You know, I remember for me, starting meditation was in a way a return to my body and a return, we might say, to my senses. And this was ironic because when I was a teenager, I started meditating in my, my early 20s. When I was a teenager up through the age of 20, I was a competitive athlete. I was, uh, I was a competitive swimmer for, uh, for 10 years. So very physical, very active, but not particularly aware of my body. Maybe I didn't want to be during those practices. I don't know. They were, they were sometimes hard, and maybe it was better to... They were maybe, but anyway, what my mind did was, it just, I don't know what I did during the practice, I thought about something else, but not what was actually happening. And so, uh, you know, and I think partly as a, a man growing up in this culture, I was conditioned to not to be very much in touch with my body, not to be very in touch with my emotions, and basically to think all the time. And of course, many women have, those, have, those, have that conditioning, but I think men probably a little bit more. And so when I started meditation, uh, it was a revelation. And I remember actually, uh, just before I was started to meditate, I, I, was, uh, I was an exchange student in, uh, living in Germany. And I was, um, this was, goes back to that story of what country do I want to live in? And I was a student and I, w- I lived, uh, I, was, I was going to German classes every morning. I lived on a farm, actually pretty interesting it was like a biodynamic farm, connect, some of you know, connected with Rudolf Steiner, and pretty interesting. Anyway, I lived on this farm for the, for the summer, and I had to walk two miles every day into town to uh, go to my German classes, which I went to for four hours a day. And I remember um, one of those days, and I, this was in an old, beautiful town called uh, Schwäbisch Hall in, uh, near, in, in uh, southwest Germany, near the, near the uh, Black Forest. And I remember walking on, along this beautiful stone trail above the river. It was very beautiful. And I remember that I, uh, at a certain point I realized I'm just thinking all the time. You know, I'm not really aware of my body. My experience is like being consciousness on a pole. And it was, it was somewhat uh, disconcerting, you know, saying, thinking, I am like consciousness on a pole. And it, it actually was... Uh, it was actually before I began meditating, but it was kind of like a, a realization that my conditioning was to be very, very mental at that age. And so when I came to meditation, it was really a kind of return to the senses. And, it was, and I was also, I actually went to a Naropa Institute in Colorado. I was also studying Tai Chi and, and um, the whole experience doing Tai Chi, doing meditation was like returning to my senses. And the first retreats I did were very much like that, like a return to the body and being able to be present with the body. And 
to actually sometimes be, have my main consciousness be primarily with the body without, over time as the concentration deepened, without so much thinking occurring. To me it was a revelation, it was like kind of coming to the senses, and a lot of it was quite beautiful, I'm sure as many of you know, that when we stay with our senses, there's, there can be this quality of the senses getting sharper, that we look and we see the trees and they look a little different. And this may even have been your experience just after a day, but it's certainly something that, that happens at times, that in a way when we are more mindful and more attentive, the senses get sharpened. We know things with more power and directness. That can be quite beautiful. It also means we are more directly aware and concentrated about the unpleasant bodily experiences as well. So it's, uh, But somehow, we, as we can be mindful, we have less of the commentary. In the teachings of the Buddha, there were six main ways to be mindful of the body. And we're primarily focusing on, I would say, uh, three of those areas. And the first is mindfulness of the breathing. In fact, the text of the uh, foundations, discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, after the preliminaries, it begins by talking about mindfulness of breathing. And so we use the awareness of breathing as a way to stabilize attention, to cultivate mindfulness. And again, then we, with that foundation, we bring it out into uh, all the other experiences that we have. And we also uh, can develop mindfulness. Uh, the second area that he mentioned was mindfulness of our posture, mindfulness of being in the seated position, mindfulness of standing, mindfulness of walking, mindfulness of the body uh, through the different postures, which is something that we're also doing. As we, and we might bring attention as we're uh, doing not just our walking meditation, but doing our work and doing just in our informal time in our rooms, whatever, brushing our teeth or, or showering, you can really say, let me cultivate mindfulness of the body there. And the Buddha talked also about mindfulness during various activities. And I think let me read just a passage from this text which really focuses on that. practitioner of mindfulness is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending his or her limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing the robes and carrying the outer robe and bowl that was directed to uh, monks or nuns, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food, tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silence. In this way, one abides contemplating the body. And the, the last area I wanted to mention is the, is the mindfulness of the body through being aware of sensations, through being aware of the different senses. Really, it follows from from the, the quote that I just gave, but it's the ability to be mindful when there are um, internal body sensations, when we are hearing something. And the instructions tomorrow morning, I'll be giving instructions on hearing, uh, to be with the sense of touch, to be with the sense of taste when we're eating, 
to be with the, the smell uh, when, when that uh, comes into our consciousness and to really learn to be present and learn to be mindful through the whole range of bodily experiences. And personally, I think that mindfulness of the body is perhaps the most central training that helps us to be mindful in daily life. That especially living in a very mental culture, a culture where there's so much thinking and talking, and it's harder to be mindful, and it's the mindfulness of the body which can really ground us. So it's not not something to think about too much now, but I just want to mention it, that for me, a major area of extending mindfulness has been working with mindfulness of the body uh, when I'm walking places. I remember, I remember when I was first doing mindfulness when I was a student. I didn't have a car, and I had to take public transportation. I was living in Boston at the time. And I just decided at one point, every time I walk, I'm going to do mindfulness of walking. Because I was a student, I was complaining, I don't have enough time for meditation. And when I was able to bring that quality of awareness to my walking and say, okay, I'm walking, time for mindfulness, rather than whatever else I would be doing when I was walking. What do we, what do we think about when we walk? Does anyone know? <laughs> and, and so just to, uh, just to shift in that way was, was transformative in my own experience. And it was inspiring, and it gave me partly a solution for how do I practice mindfulness when I'm, when I'm a student and have to do certain things. And so it's, uh, we can also be mindful at meetings. We can be mindful of the body. So it's really, I'm just saying this partly to um, maybe give some energy or inspiration for the, just the mindfulness in the informal times here, but also to give some sense that it actually, uh, in the long run, is a very crucial part of our practice, this mindfulness of the body. I want, to, I want to end by talking about the connection between mindfulness of the body and the factor of wisdom. Because in many ways, the, as some of the passages that I suggested or that I gave from the Buddha suggest, there's a way in which uh, mindfulness is taken to be a major way of developing wisdom. And we do that partly by the fact of just noticing and studying our experience. We study the way our minds work. We bring, as it were, that uh, flashlight or that focus, that um, lamp to the study of our own experience. And we notice things that we haven't noticed before. We notice, uh, and this isn't always instantaneous, but it happens over time, that we notice, when, especially when we do a retreat like this, we notice things, we start noticing things. Oh, that's what I do that's what I do with a knee pain. Oh, that's how my mind works about this particular memory that I have. Oh, that's what happens. And we, as we study experience, there can be a deepening of knowledge of our own patterns, of, how, uh, of what we do with a given stimulus, and so forth. There can also be a study of more of the universal qualities of our experience. We can start noticing and tuning in more to the qualities, like the quality of impermanence. We can notice that uh, things keep changing, things keep shifting. And as we study, we can, as we study our own experience, we can notice that more clearly. We can notice more and more what leads to suffering. We can notice the extent to which some of our, our ways that we react to our um, experience 
lead to suffering, and some of the ways that we can respond to our experience lead to freedom. And that, in the long run, is going to be the core of how wisdom is developed. It's studying what really can lead us to greater, uh, greater freedom and really knowing with more depth what leads to suffering. And there's a way in which uh, just the very fact of being mindful and learning to separate mindfulness from reactivity is actually at the heart of the Buddhist teaching about wisdom. And I want to end with, with a, a teaching that's had a big impact on me and that some of you may have heard. It's the teaching of the two arrows. It's a very fundamental teaching, very relevant for what we're doing here this first day. And in it, the Buddha distinguishes, we might say, between what's unpleasant and what's suffering. And he said that there is a distinction. And as you perhaps have heard, uh, we often say it like this, the unpleasant comes with being alive. There's a certain amount of pain and difficulty or difficult experiences that come with being alive. And so pain is part of the agreement. Suffering is optional. And that's a very, that's a crucial distinction which we really come to study here. And one of the ways that that is unpacked is through this teaching of the two arrows. The Buddha said that we're all, as it were, shot by an arrow. We could call that the arrow of pain or unpleasant experiences, experiences we don't like, whether it, they're in the body or in the mind or in the heart or whatever. And we, we all have that. We all have, uh, because of our bodies being as they are, we have the possibility of being ill. We have the possibility of being physically hurt. Because we are emotional beings, we have the possibility of being emotionally wounded or hurt. We can be treated unfairly or unjustly. And we typically are at, you know, at certain times it happens. And that is part of the, that is what the Buddha would call the first arrow. That we all have a certain amount of pain that comes in our life. And he said the task of spiritual practice, the task of mindfulness, is not to get rid of pain. It's to respond wisely to pain, but it's not to somehow try to get rid of all pain. But rather, he said, the task of our practice is not to shoot a second arrow because of the first arrow. Not to shoot a second arrow, we might say, at ourselves or at other people, as if shooting that second arrow would make the first arrow go away. And so we shoot that second arrow. You you might think of ways that we shoot the second arrow. Uh, Doctors tell me that most of what patients experience as physical pain is actually not the original stimulus, but it's the reaction and the contraction around that original stimulus, the inability to relax with something that is unpleasant. That's why one of the great uh, um, applications of meditation is in the health field. And some of you know uh, John Kabat-Zinn and his work of mindfulness-based stress reduction, which totally works on this principle, that with mindfulness, people can learn how to relax, even when there's chronic pain, and to, to, as it were, not shoot that second arrow. Similarly, if we have a difficult emotional experience, and I have, let's say, a really difficult interaction with a friend. Let's say the friend says someone nas- something nasty to me. That, we could say, that's the first arrow. And what we, in a conditioned way, do often 
is we, because of that pain of that first arrow, I might instantaneously react by just saying something nasty back to that person. It's very common, right? We do that all the time. That's shooting the second arrow in large part because we're not mindful. And of course, typically, conflicts are in large part people shooting second arrows at each other. You could interpret the whole Middle East, even though it's complex in many ways. In a simple way, the Middle East is about people shooting second arrows at each other, each of them justifiably claiming, I have been pained by you. And so a tremendous amount of the the wars that we have in our world are because of people who somehow not being able to act wisely because of pain, which may have been indeed caused by another person. And so there's something quite quite deep. And you know, in my own work with connecting meditation with a social change, it's been important to see for me that this, this teaching of the second arrow is actually very, very close to the teachings about nonviolence that we find with Gandhi or King, which are we could interpret as a teaching that says, I have had the first arrow shot at me. It is the arrow of colonialism. It is the arrow of oppression. And I will choose not to continue the cycles of keeping the arrows being shot, but I will end the cycle of violence by saying, I want to address the injustice, but I will do so without shooting a second arrow. The shooting the second arrow keeps the cycles going. And so our training here, and a a very key area where we develop wisdom, is in simply being with our bodies, in this case today, being with sensations and seeing the tendency to shoot the second arrow and noticing it and being able to be present with uh, basically to be present with the unpleasant without needing to react. And that's not easy. It's not easy with difficult sensations. It's not easy with difficult emotions. It's not easy with injustice. And again, the idea here is to learn that we in some ways need to learn to be present with what's there. It doesn't mean that we don't respond or that we don't try to change a situation. And so there's something, but there's something about being able to be with a situation and know it without just reacting right away, which lets us actually have the information that we need to know in order to act more out of compassion, to transform a situation, whether it's uh, having to do with ourselves or a relationship or, or a larger society. So it's in that way that as we, as we study mindfulness, as we study our experience with mindfulness, there's a way that we, that we develop in wisdom. We come to see the, what leads to further suffering. We come to be able increasingly to choose uh, not to act in that way. Because if we had to talk about the whole of this path, it's really about, it really could be said very simply. What we do is moment to moment, we're mindful of what our experience is. On the basis of that mindfulness, we act, or let's say with that we summon our best wisdom and compassion and develop an intention to act in a certain way. And then we act. And that is really the, the core of our, of our experience, really. It's, 
being mindful, being aware of what's happening, making use of the resources of wisdom and compassion before we act, setting an intention that's based on that wisdom and compassion and then acting. And we, in a sense, we do that moment to moment here when we sit. We do that in our lives. And what we're doing is really getting a training in that. We're getting especially now a training in that first part, which is the training in mindfulness that can help us to see more clearly. And on that basis, we can, we can act more clearly and act more compassionately and act in a way which leads to uh, less suffering. So this, in a way, is the big picture that helps us to maybe to frame what is it I'm doing here sitting with my knee hurting? It's to really make those connections. And because, in a way, uh, the training is such that that's part of it, but it really it opens up to something way, way bigger. And that's what, that's what I think we are inviting here as we, as we practice together. I think I'll stop here and thank you for your attention and invite, if you have, maybe let's just take a moment, maybe take a minute or two just to sit quietly and to see how anything that I've said has resonated with you. So we have time maybe for two or three questions. And I think I'd particularly like to invite any questions, not, not so much of a philosophical nature, but questions that really relate to your practice that you've, we've been doing today. And generally what we'll, what we'll do is we'll have talks in the evening and we'll have time in the, um, in the period uh, at the end of the nine o'clock sitting to actually go back also and to reflect or ask questions about the talk. And actually what we typically do at Spirit Rock is that we don't take questions right after the talk, but take them the next day uh, in the morning to kind of let, let things be uh, lived with and worked with. But I wanted to give some time for questions tonight because we, we're just at the beginning of the retreat. And then particularly if there's some question that is uh, on your mind about how your practice is going. Yeah, so anything? Time for just a few. Hamid, please. Uh, I find mindfulness with the eating uh, yeah. very, very effective, especially with yeah. um, the whole experience of um, the taste yeah. and the, the craving. But with walking, though, I sometimes feel that um, I'm trying to slow myself a bit too much. Trying to slow myself? Slow yourself a down? A little bit uh, too much. Yeah. Um, Meaning, meaning walk too slowly? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And like my instinct would tell me, hmm, you know, I'll, I can go maybe a little faster yeah. and be more aware. But I, I sometimes just feel that I'm resisting yeah. something. Well, you can, you can, did everyone hear the question? 
really about uh, I'm feeling like I'm walking too slowly, I have an urge to walk a little more quickly. Well, you can experiment. And the main thing is what really helps to uh, develop the, of course, I don't know how, how fast you're walking, <laughs> uh, just hearing you talk about it, but uh, the main thing is what really permits a mindfulness of the walking, during the walking period. And for most of us, uh, slowing down somewhat, be, be uh, low as it were, normal speed, uh, it helps with that, because otherwise things are happening quite quickly. Just like we, in a way, we slow things down in the in the hall for the sitting. So, are you walking really like super slowly? I try to. Yeah. So it's so it's fine to walk a little more, but the main thing is to, would be really to to uh, track how mindful you can be. And are you using the labels, the lifting, moving, placing, shifting, something like that? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. It's much easier with the labels. Yeah, yeah, to stay to stay with it, yeah. And so, yeah, just to, just experiment. And sometimes the slow walking, if you haven't done it before, can feel a little bit strange. I remember um, the great Thai teacher Achan Cha, who was Jack Cornfield's teacher. He came once to um, the Insight Meditation Society in uh, Massachusetts, and everyone was doing slow walking out out on the front lawn. And he said. Kind of looks like a mental hospital, doesn't it? <laughs> so uh, it, it can feel a little weird, and uh, but he, he he was a he was kind of a trickster type anyway, but because he he knew what people were doing, he was just being being uh, playful. Uh, but I would say, yeah, experiment some. That the key is, can I be mindful? And if you if you want to speed it up some, but but know that it it could be common to feel a little resistance to going more slowly. And, and just stay with it. And the main thing is if you really can be mindful. And it sounds like it's helpful to use the label some too. Yeah. Thanks, Amit. Any time for probably one more? Please, yeah, for well, Focusing on the breath, I have some thoughts, and they're like more kind of wisdom. Okay? So it's uh, kind of interesting, and uh, it's hard for me to try to get away from them. So, and and, and uh, so very, uh, so being with the breath and then having thoughts, and some of them are very like interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, more interesting than the sensations of the knee, huh? <laughs> Yeah, uh, and how would how would you answer your own question? Well, it's just that you know, I need to. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I, I I was being a little playful myself, but it's it's um, yeah. What what's interesting is that were so were they really interesting thoughts that maybe you haven't had before? Yes. Some, and that sometimes happens because in a way this quality of going into the silence, can open up what we sometimes call our intuition. And there can be some very interesting insights into uh, all sorts of things. You know, I know anyone who uh, is a creative person, sometimes you sit here and all sorts of things open up. You know, myself as a, you know, as a writer, uh, 
a lot of things happen in meditation, like amazing ideas for what I might write about. And, and what, we, what we ask for really is a certain kind of discipline. And it's, uh, in daily life, there can be a real value in meditating and then opening yourself up to thinking about a particular issue. It can be very, very valuable. I, I do that a lot. But it's, it's helpful to really distinguish between meditation and creative thinking. And to, uh, and to really, especially at this beginning time, really to keep uh, some discipline and to uh, just keep coming back, even though the ideas are incredibly interesting, exciting, entrancing, wonderful, never have happened before in the cosmos, and so forth. Maybe, yeah. Does that, does that make some sense? Yeah, so it's just really, because actually the, the uh, again, maybe towards the end of the retreat, we can talk about the, uh, about how to work with meditative states, actually to do some creative works. Like, but I think the distinction of, of knowing now I'm meditating, now I'm applying a meditative state to an issue, that's an important distinction. It comes up all the time talking with people who are, who are creative. And for myself, I, I try to do that. Like I will, I will uh, if I, I will, might meditate for half an hour and then I say, okay, now the half hour is open. I want to just sit in a receptive state for 10 minutes and, and let my mind work in this very fluid, open way. And that can be very valuable. Uh, it's not what we're doing here, but it can be something in daily life that can be very helpful. And you can get a taste of it because it is the, the mind can be very creative, open, and have a lot of, in, how many people have had some interesting, some very interesting, let's say somewhat unusual insights, even in, during the last day? Yeah, so it's common. And if we followed them all the time, we wouldn't develop so much in mindfulness. <laughs> We'd get a lot of interesting thoughts, but this is a mindfulness retreat. <laughs> so so thanks, thanks for the question, Harry, because we could see that you were actually speaking for, for others as well. So, so we have now about uh, half an hour for walking. And again, you can walk um, in the courtyard or can walk uh, in the lower walking hall, or also in the, in the uh, just in the foyer, you can walk there. And the other, the other retreat will have a bell, I think, in about five minutes. So, and so we'll be able in a short time to have all the best walking places for ourselves <laughs> without grasping. <laughs> so thank you for your attention. And we'll come back at nine. And I think I have some handouts for some chanting tonight. And I think I'll leave these... Uh, on a chair uh, right near the door as we come in. So you can, uh, yeah, would you like to? Yeah.